Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Here in Southern California, in the city of Inglewood, 1,600 gallons of oil have leaked from a pipeline in an oil field near a state park. E&B Natural Resources, which operates the field, says the spill was caused by human error. The company also says the spill has been contained and cleanup work is underway. The Thousand Acre Oil Field is the largest urban oil field in the country. Residents near it have long expressed worries about health risks related to drilling and have called for petroleum production to be phased out. And in Fresno, city leaders have announced a proposal to respond to a rise in violence against the Asian and Pacific Islander communities. From Valley Public Radio, Sarith Hawk reports that many of these crimes go unreported. There's only been one official Asian hate crime reported in the city of Fresno since the beginning of 2020. But that doesn't mean crimes aren't happening. There is a significant under-reporting of hate crimes in our community as a result of people um, being either fearful of bringing that forward or reluctant to bring that information forward to the, the police department. Mayor Jerry Dyer spoke at Fresno Interdenominational Refugee Ministries, or FIRM, Tuesday, along with other city leaders and community organizations. He said the underreporting of crimes is linked to cultural barriers and distrust of government authorities. He said the city hopes to create an Office of Community Affairs, hiring local community liaisons. I'm hopeful that we can, through this Office of Community Affairs, establish that level of trust, that liaison, with folks being out in the community and partnering with the community-based organizations so that they're more willing to come forward. Dyer said the office's first priority is hiring an Asian American. The office also plans to hire Latino and Punjabi representatives. Funding will be proposed as part of the next city budget starting July 1st. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno. The Fresno City Council is expected to vote on that resolution later today. In Southern California, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors is forming a working group to address rising violence against Asian Americans. The group will be part of the county's existing anti-racism, diversity and inclusion initiative, which was launched last July in the midst of protests over police violence against black people. California is expecting a sizable drop in COVID-19 vaccine allocations from the federal government next week. State health officials tell the Mercury News the state will see about 90% fewer Johnson & Johnson vaccine doses next week. This comes as several vaccination sites across the state this week have had a large number of appointment slots available. That includes the federally run site at Cal State Los Angeles, which through this Sunday is allowing anyone 18 and older to walk up and get a Johnson & Johnson shot as long as supplies last. 
Let's turn to what's called COVID long haulers, people who still have health problems weeks and even months after getting infected with the virus. Yesterday on the California Report, we talked to Charlie McCone. He's a 32-year-old San Francisco resident who's been suffering symptoms from COVID-19 for more than a year. McCone has been at a loss for what's causing his health problems, but thinks one solution could be a long-term COVID clinic. These are medical facilities where researchers are working to get to the root of the problem for long haulers. But getting into such a clinic has been harder than he anticipated. Certain healthcare providers have very strict referral policies, and my team has clearly identified that I am dealing with a situation of long covid the most cutting edge research right now and in science is saying that these patients need to be referred to a team who are studying this and treating this because we're, we're seeing that rehab in this uh, setting is helping patients improve or better manage their symptoms. I am in a situation where I have seen about 14 to 16 specialists and doctors and they're saying, we believe you. We think this is this. We don't know what to do. You should be referred to this clinic. I get the referral then my health insurance says they cannot provide any additional testing because I've already had the million dollar workup. So we're not going to make the referral when in fact, I've you know been referred for the specific physical therapy and treatment based off of the knowledge they've learned over the past year. This is a very common story. There are in the Bay Area alone, a hundred other people who are going through this my age who can't get the referral. And so the issue is access. We requested a response from Kaiser about their policy, but we're told they need more time to issue a statement. So what type of research is happening at these long-term COVID clinics? I spoke about that with Dr. Lakshmi Santosh, the physician faculty lead at UC San Francisco's post-COVID optimal clinic. Does a treatment regimen exist? It's a really good question. I think because everyone's body's responses are so different. An individualized treatment plan is really important. So that elderly person who is in the ICU on a ventilator for weeks is going to have a really different treatment plan than a younger person who didn't have any medical problems who now has persistent fatigue. I think that there is no magic bullet or uh, cure per se that the medical community has found yet for these persistent symptoms. The good news is that people are getting better. And the main thing that we're doing is finding out proactively what symptoms people are experiencing them and trying to treat those symptoms really thoughtfully and proactively. So for example, if someone has a lot of shortness of breath, thinking about why that might be, investigating what might be the cause of that, seeing if things like inhalers are helpful, seeing if things like a plan of pulmonary rehab, which is like a special exercise program for your lungs, is helpful. If someone has more kind of fatigue, uh, issues with fatigue or brain fog, there are special neuro rehab centers that focus on that or occupational therapy. There haven't been any good medical sort of pill type treatments for fatigue, but there are some that are being studied. And so we really work collaboratively in our clinic with a multidisciplinary team with input from physical therapists, pharmacists, psychologists, integrative medicine specialists, cardiologists, neurologists, to really figure out what each person is experiencing them to come up with a treatment plan that works for their symptoms. And some people, fortunately, were very, very sick, and now they've recovered and they don't need any specific treatments at all. 
As I understand it, UCSF is just one of a handful of institutions studying this. Does more have to be done? Is enough being done to understand what's happening here? Absolutely. There's a lot of research that needs to be done. And we are lucky to be at a center that is doing a lot of research. Some of my colleagues like Dr. Mike Peluso at Zuckerberg San Francisco General have launched a big study of people recovering from coronavirus. The other thing that we're doing in is that the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, recently released a big funding call for organizations across the country to apply to study the long-term effects of COVID more rigorously, more systematically. And UCSF and many other centers have applied for that funding. So I think there's a lot more to come in this area. Do long haul symptoms in people who've had COVID, are they basically a big red flag to society saying, hey, when you say the pandemic is over, it may not be over because there could be people wrestling with the after effects of it for years or more to come. That is exactly right. I think that early in the pandemic, we thought of it as a binary, a black and white. You either died or survived. And what we're seeing more and more is that a lot of people have survived and they're still struggling and battling these long-term effects. Just this morning, I had my full clinic filled with people who are you know, dealing with persistent symptoms after COVID infection. And so this can't be ignored and has to be taken seriously. Just this weekend, last week, I was meeting with health policy people from our members of Congress to advocate for more funding, more research, more clinical coordination, since this is going to be something that we're going to be wrestling with for a while. That is Dr. Lakshmi Santosh of UC San Francisco. Doctor, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Saul. Appreciate it. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. When it comes to the migrant crisis at the border, a lot of attention has been focused on Central Americans. But people from other parts of the world have come to Mexican border cities like Tijuana seeking to try to cross to the U.S. for asylum. That includes people from Haiti. From San Diego, here's KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. A community of Haitian migrants has been in Tijuana for nearly a decade, fleeing a devastating earthquake, hurricanes, financial collapse, and now deep political instability and violence as an unpopular president tries to hold on to power in Port-au-Prince. Many Haitians are stuck in Tijuana, fearful that by crossing the border, they'll be sent right back to Haiti, but unable to make a life for themselves in Mexico. When a migrant camp was established in February at the El Chaparral port of entry in Tijuana, hundreds of Haitians set up tents, 
hoping that they would soon be allowed to declare asylum in the U.S. Dorleon Ito was one of them. He'd been living in Tijuana for a year. He said that Haiti is his country and that he loves it, but it wasn't possible to stay there. There were too many criminals with nothing to do. Ito had spent five years working in Chile, but the discrimination there was intense. He was trying to get into the United States, even though he feared possibly being returned to Haiti. He said if they deport him, he wouldn't live in Haiti. He doesn't have anything there. He wouldn't have the money to leave, though. He's afraid. If he gets sent there, he's worried he'll get killed. A rule known as Title 42 bars the entry of any asylum seekers into the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic. Border Patrol has been immediately sending border crossers back to Mexico or their countries. Since the beginning of the Biden administration, however, more children, families, and single adults have been able to enter the U.S. and continue their asylum claims from inside the United States. And interior immigration enforcement has been scaled back. But that hasn't held true for Haitian migrants. The Biden administration has removed over 1,200 Haitians from the United States. That's more than during all of Trump's final fiscal year in office. Gurleen Joseph is the executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Since 2016, her organization has advocated for Haitians trying to avoid deportation to an unstable and dangerous country. It's criminal for both the United States and Haiti to agree to send and receive people. When, when they land in Haiti, those people go in hiding. Joseph led a group of Haitian Americans down to Tijuana last month in an effort to connect with the Haitian asylum seekers and make sure they're safe. What they found wasn't reassuring. The Haitians were leaving the camp because they felt discriminated against by the Central American migrants. Christian Nestor is a Haitian American lawyer who works with Haitian Bridge Alliance. He says that many Haitians have gone broke in Mexico. A lot of Haitians are stuck here and their workers' authorization has expired. So they don't really have any way to make any money, and they're stuck here. He doesn't believe that the treatment of Haitians in the American immigration system, or the role that the U.S. has played in supporting the current regime in Haiti, has deterred anyone from coming to the U.S. Many Haitians have jumped the border fence in recent weeks, tired of the racism, and willing to risk being returned to Haiti. Asking around the camp late last month, Dorleon Ito was nowhere to be found. Jean-Claude Jean is still holding out hope. He's one of the last Haitians in the migrant encampment at El Chaparral. But even his patience is wearing thin. He says he'll stay in Tijuana another two or three weeks only. Then he'll cross. Whatever happens to him, he'll have to accept it. He doesn't want to live the way he's had to live here. For The California Report, I'm Max Rivlin-Adler in Tijuana. And that is the California Report for Thursday, April 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash adapting care. Water heaters only. Specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! <laughs> 